We will be in Psalm 1, so you can turn there if you have a Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles um, in front of you, it's page 448. Well, there are some things in life you almost feel obligated to do, like dad jokes. I have a six-year-old daughter, Lily, and every time she says, and she says it a lot, Dad, I'm hungry, or Dad, I'm bored, I respond with, Hi, hungry, I'm Dad. She loves it every time, of course. It annoys her. Got that from Bluey, so thank you, Bandit. Um, But when you're up here, you're the guy giving the sermon on New Year's Eve, it feels like you probably need to talk and think about the year ahead and about resolutions. And I wanted to start by just sharing one of my resolutions. So I have a goal in 2024 of running more. And by running, I mean telling my family, hey, I'm running to Chick-fil-A. Do you need anything? (laughs) Say thank you for laughing. Yeah, just kidding. I do believe it's important to think about the upcoming year or really any season to try to be intentional rather than getting swept up in the normal patterns of life. But I also just think resolutions are interesting. I think the resolutions we make are almost a window into what we value, what we desire, and what we think we should be doing. So I found one Forbes article and it lists the top resolutions that people made. So what do you think are those top resolutions? Here are a few of the top ones. So number one, 48% of people said improve fitness. Number two, improve finances. Three, improve mental health. Number four, lose weight, 34%. And then five, improve diet. So those are the big five. A few other ones that came on the list were make more time for loved ones, stop smoking, learn a new skill, make time for hobbies, improve work-life balance, and travel more. So as you hear that list or look at that list, there are some common things, many good things that people think will either make them happier or increase their quality of life. Here's another interesting stat I found. So in their poll from 22, so when they polled people after the completion of the year, 37% of Americans said they had one goal or at least one resolution for that year. And 87% of those people thought they would keep it the entire year. I love the optimism there. But the data actually shows that the average resolution only lasted 3.74 months. And only 6% of those people kept their resolution all year long. So that seems more realistic. Now, as you hear those resolutions, look at the data, you could draw several observations, but I think they point to at least one thing. And that's that all of us want a better, more satisfying, happier life. So even if you have what you consider a good life, we all would like it to be a little better. We all want some improvements. We all want to see some change in our life. I mean, don't you want 2024 to be better than 2023? Don't you want more happiness, satisfaction, and rest? Or if you're a Christian, don't you want to grow closer to God in this upcoming year? I think those are all good desires. But where do we look to fulfill those things, and how do we pursue them for longer than 30 days? So that's why I chose Psalm 1 as our text today. Psalm 1 opens the book of Psalms with a wisdom psalm about the best way to live. It puts a path before us. Psalm 1 actually gives us a picture or a blueprint of what the blessed or blessed life is, the kind of life that God says is truly thriving or flourishing or that offers joy. So here's what the main point of Psalm 1 is, or here's the main idea I'll share today. It's that God invites us into a life of blessing, and that blessing is found by rooting ourselves in God's word. 
We'll see that the blessed life isn't primarily about pleasure, success, prosperity, or influence. But the blessed life is about knowing and walking with God through his word. So if you're willing and able, would you stand as I read Psalm 1? Psalm 1, the word of the Lord says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can have a seat. So this morning as I walk through Psalm 1, I want to share five points that just walk us through this psalm. And as we look at these points, we'll see two contrasts. That as you heard, Psalm 1 is laying out two very different ways to live and two very different paths. And at the end of the message this morning, we'll consider some practical ways that we can get into God's word in 2024. So the first thing we see is that God defines the blessed life and then God invites us into it. And essential to understanding this psalm is the very first word. The very first word of the entire book of Psalms. It begins with this phrase, blessed or blessed is the man or blessed is the one. And it's laying out this picture of the representative life of an ideal man or woman of God. This is what a blessed person looks like. And when you think of that word, when you hear about blessed or blessing, what comes to mind? Well, a decade ago, um, when there were hashtags, hashtag blessed was actually the number one thing posted on social media. And what do you think people were posting about when they put hashtag blessed? Now, often it was about personal success, self-promotion, or the kinds of experiences or possessions that are enviable. So your vacation in the Colorado Rockies, and you take a picture, and you say hashtag blessed. Christmas morning, you get the perfect picture with your family in their jammies, blessed. You go to the coffee shop, you get a latte, and they put that cute little latte art on the top, take a picture, blessed. You get a new car, blessed. And those are all good things. I would take a new car. I like lattes and coffee. I even like family Christmas jammies, and I would take a stand there. So those are good things, but is that what the Bible's talking about in Psalm 1 when it says blessed? You see, the problem is we unfortunately equate blessing with good circumstances, with physical health, or with material possessions. But that's not the way that Psalm 1 uses blessed, and that's not the word here. And this is important because if you misunderstand the word, you misunderstand the psalm itself. What will happen is if you think this means God's blessing reigned upon us, that you'll read Psalm 1 as a formula, that I need to do these things. I need to read my Bible and get into the word because that's what will get God to bless me. When what's actually happening here is not that formula to earn God's blessing, but it's a description of what God says is the blessed life. Do you see the difference? It's not here's how you earn blessing, but it's here's God's description of what a blessed life actually looks like. 
And we see this same word, blessed or blessed, when Jesus starts his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about who is in his kingdom that he's building. And Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the powerful or the wealthy. Blessed are the successful or the influencers. Blessed are those who have the life that they always dreamed of. No, instead, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who show mercy and will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers rather than those who stir up strife. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so it's important to see that both Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and here in Psalm 1, they're both talking about blessing or blessed, not to refer to God as a pez dispenser of earthly blessings, but as the kind of life that God says, this is how you were meant to live. This is the life of fruitfulness and flourishing. And so we see God define what he's talking about here, but then also God invites us into that kind of life. The second thing we see, and we'll see this in verses one and two, is that the blessed life is experienced by then saturating ourselves with scripture. In verses one and two, the psalm tells us what the blessed man or woman does not do, and then what is true of them. And so he contrasts two environments a person can be saturated in. That environment has to do with the voices or the influences or the people that affect their thinking or their values, their desires, and how they act. So look again at verse 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you see the parallel there. There's three different parallels going on in that verse that they don't walk, stand, or sit. And I think these, par- or these parallels are emphasizing what the Christian life, what the blessed life is not. That it's not to be associated with sin or foolishness. And commentators think that there is this repetition to suggest that there's a progression. That someone goes deeper and deeper into folly and sin and then further away from God. James Johnson writes this. He says, A man or woman settles into sin by stages. He walks, then he stops and stands, and finally he sits down. First he is influenced by the sinners, then he identifies with them, and finally he spreads sin to others through this laughter and sarcasm. So you see a progression of sin in a person's life. And this is a reminder that Psalm 1 is telling us there are two different paths that will lead you to two different destinations. And the danger of sin is that we rarely dive into the deep end of sin, but we slowly walk down a slippery slope into sin. It starts with just a little gossip, and then you become a gossip. It starts with just looking at one or two images, and then you're addicted to pornography. It starts with joking about sin, and then you become comfortable with sin. It starts with just a few flashes of anger or anxiety, and then those become the norm in your life. So Psalm 1 is giving us this reminder that our small sins are serious and deadly because they're only going to get bigger and deeper and lead us away from God. A second implication from this is that our friends, our peers, our influences, those people affect the path we're on and whether we keep walking down it or we turn around. 
the people around us will either point us to God and his word or they'll take us away from God and his word. And these people in verse one, these companions are stirring up desires for the things of the world rather than the things of God. They're leading them into foolishness rather than wisdom. And so again, the reminder is the friends you make or at least the people you spend time with will greatly affect your spiritual well-being. But also, I think it's interesting to take Psalm 1 and say, yeah, he was primarily talking about people, physical people we live around, but how do you apply Psalm 1 in a digital age? We should apply Psalm 1 in a digital age. And it's a reminder that there are lots of voices out there that can occupy your time, your attention, that can just distract you, or that can lead you astray. That could be a podcast, social media, the websites you read. It could be your favorite news station or a pundit or authors or influencers or the shows you watch. We rarely pause to consider how much time, how much authority am I giving to these voices in my life? How are they shaping what I do value, what I think about, and the way I treat other people? So ask yourself, with these voices, with these platforms, Are they leading you deeper into fellowship with God or are they leading you into more sin and away from God? As you think about those things in your life that we probably use like social media, TV, the internet, are those things producing good spiritual fruit in your life? Are they producing pride and anger and fear and discontentment? So don't ignore how we're influenced every day by the voices we listen to, by the things we read and watch. So if this is part of verse 1, the how not to live, the way of the unrighteous, the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 especially offers the right path to walk down or the blessed life that God is describing. So verse 2 says this, But his delight, this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So again, the contrast here is those who keep company with God and his word or those who keep company with fools who are not in God's word. And both options, again, hold weight over us. They influence us, and they lead us down different paths. And it says, the blessed person, they immerse their heart and their mind and their life into God's word. They're not just reading the Bible to check a box. They're not just reading the Bible to get some information or answer a Jeopardy question. They're getting into the Bible to enjoy the God of the Bible. They're getting into the Bible to see who he is and how we actually live with him and walk with him and worship him. And just as we might delight in good food, good desserts, a day off tomorrow, if you have tomorrow off, this person delights, it says, in seeing God and knowing God through the law of God or the word of God. It tells us they not only delight in it, but they meditate on it day and night. Now, meditation can be a confusing word in our day, but biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. This isn't like a Star Wars Jedi that's trying to clear their mind from any thoughts. Instead, biblical meditation is actually filling your mind and filling your heart with thoughts, namely the truth of God's word. What biblical meditation is, it's moving past just reading and getting generalities, but seeing the specifics in God's word. It's not just scanning God's word like we scan an article, but it's actually soaking up the word of God. It's chewing on it. It's considering it. It's thinking about it throughout the day. Meditation is reading the Bible slowly enough and actively enough that we actually pay attention to the words we read. 
It tells us not only that this person meditates, but it says they meditate on God's word day and night. So they don't just read the Bible and then move on to the rest of their day and never think about it. But they read it to do something with it. So throughout the day, this person is applying it in little situations in their life. They're clinging to it in trials or troubles or temptations. They're praying over it as situations arise throughout the day. They're meditating on it so that it's stored up in their heart and they can apply it throughout the day or the night. Let me give one example. So here's a little practical piece of how you could do this in 2024. There are lots of ways you can meditate, but here's one really small thing I've started doing that's been really helpful. So before you end your Bible reading time, let's say you read in the morning, um, and that's not more godly than reading at night, but let's just say you start your day, you read the Bible, maybe you pray to close. Before you end your time of Bible reading, try finding one verse or even one phrase and either quickly memorizing it or writing it down. So then I'm going to talk about a Bible reading plan we can do as a church. And if you did that, tomorrow you would be in the beginning of Galatians 1. So what I might do is take Galatians 1.4. It says this. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So what I would do to meditate is simply try to remember that or write it down or put it in my phone. And then I recall it throughout the day. So then when I'm tempted to sin, I remember that truth that Jesus died to deliver me from this. So I don't have to choose to sin. I've been delivered from sin. Or when I'm discouraged or dissatisfied, I remember my joy, my satisfaction is not meant to be in this world and in this age. Or I can just pause and I can give thanks to God that this is telling me that my sins are forgiven. That right now in this day, I don't have to worry about what God thinks about me. I can live in the peace of knowing my sin is forgiven. I mean, that is something you could chew on all day and enjoy the grace of God. Or maybe you pray over that, that you pray that God would help you enjoy the forgiveness and grace you live in and not look to the world for significance or satisfaction. So that's just one example of how you take one thing, one truth from Scripture, and all day you're chewing on it, you're meditating on it, and you're trying to ask God to give you reminders for how to apply it. So what Psalm 1 is doing is it's inviting us into this life, not just where we read a book about God, but we walk with God, that we learn who he is, we're given wisdom rather than foolishness, and we find the strength and the joy we need from God through his word. The third thing we see is that life with God through his word leads to fruitfulness and stability. So in verses 3 and 4, we see what are the results of this? Or what are some of the fruit of these two different ways of living? Well, the person who doesn't root themselves in God, it says, ultimately leads an unfruitful, shallow life because their roots are not going deep. Now, this doesn't mean they won't have a good life. It doesn't mean they won't have material, physical, financial blessings in their life. But this is saying it's ultimately not a life transformed by God. And as we'll see later, it's a life that leads to nowhere. These people are described as chaff, that they're weightless, that they're driven away by the wind. There's a lack of stability and a lack of fruit. But the contrast here talks about the blessed man. And the person who meditates on God's word, it says in verse 3, that they are like a tree, a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And so Psalm 1 is saying that this person who meditates on God's word, 
that knows God and walks with God through the Bible, they experience fruitfulness like a tree planted by waters. And when it says its leaf does not wither, it means it endures through all seasons. That it doesn't dry up in summer or in trials. That when the winds and rains crash on it, the tree does not tip over. That it's actually held together. It's sustained because its roots are going deep into God through his word. It's being watered. And again, I just want to be careful to say this isn't a formula. This isn't saying if you read your Bible tomorrow on Monday morning, that Monday afternoon you're promised to be happy or that you're promised to overcome things like impatience. What's happening here is it's giving us a path, a trajectory, a way of being. Let me give a personal example just to show, okay, what does this look like? What should fruit be? So even as I was working on this sermon this week, trying to read the Bible, trying to be rooted in Scripture, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't sin. I did. So I had to, my wife asked me to put away some chairs. This was after Christmas. Had to put away a fold-up card table and chairs. And so I go into the garage to put it into the original box. The problem is there are things in the way. So I'm trying to like reach over a TV, reach over things, put it in the box. As I start doing that, it's not fitting in the box. It's hitting the corners. Then I start knocking things over. And so I get angry and I sin and I'm frustrated and I go all Clark Griswold and I start slamming the chairs into the box. And maybe that sounds bad to you. I thought it was a victory. I didn't throw it through the window. My family didn't see it, so that was a good thing. But that's an example of even when you're trying to be rooted in God's word, it's not a magic pill. It doesn't make all your sin go away. But what happened is a few minutes later, when the rational mind comes back, um, I was able to confess that sin to God. I was able to confess it's foolish for me to throw an adult tantrum when I'm angry. And so I asked for God, not only forgiveness, but I asked for patience next time. I think that's more of what Psalm 1 is saying. It's not that when we're in the word, it automatically fixes our problems, it takes away our sin, or it keeps us from messing up that day, but it gives us a trajectory of very slow growth, long-term fruit. It's not always that you will be perfect in the moment, but part of it is the word of God is in your mind, and it helps you respond to your failures and your sins. And so it says, this spiritual fruit in our life, it happens by the Spirit of God at work in us as we are in the Word of God. Now the language here of being in the Word or being by the stream and being fed and fruitful, this reminds me of Jesus in John 15. He uses very similar language of Psalm 1. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I'll stop there. So again, we have a parallel of what Psalm 1 is saying and what Jesus says. And both of them are giving this picture that to me it reminds me of a potted vegetable plant. Now, on its own, this vegetable plant, it will lack fruit. It will dry out. And I've learned that the hard way. When I've left for su- in the summer for a week, I come back, and the plant is completely dead. But what happens if you do water it, if it stays saturated, it grows, and it's healthy, and eventually, not right away, but eventually, fruit will blossom. And so I think both Psalm 1, Jesus, and John 15, they're giving us this image that you, When you root yourself in God's word, 
when you abide in Christ through the words of Christ, that your roots do sink down deep into God and that eventually fruit will come. You will be held together and you will be sustained. The fruit isn't always immediate or even apparent, but God is at work bringing health, life, and transformation to you. Number four, the last thing we see from Psalm 1 is that the blessed life offers the continual presence and watchful care of God. We see this in verses 5 and 6. So these last two verses, they give us our final contrast. So we've already seen the contrast between the blessed man and the foolish man and what they're rooted in. We just saw this contrast between a life of fruitfulness and a life of futility. And finally, we see that there's a contrast in their outcome, the destination, or where this path will lead, to them, will lead them. And what we see eventually is that the way of the wicked perishes, but the way of the righteous prevails. Verse 5 suggests that one day, at least at the final judgment, those who chose to do things their way, they will have no leg to stand on. That they will not be with God or God's people. They will be judged. Verse 6 summarizes this path in saying that it is a path that leads to perishing. It's a path that leads to destruction. But again, this is contrasted to the life of the blessed one. In verse 6 it says this, While the unrighteous are on a path to nowhere, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now when it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it's telling us more than God has an awareness of where we're at or that he knows what path you're on. It's not saying that God checks Life 360 or looks at his phone and says, okay, I see their location. The point is that God is personally, intimately invested in you and your life. He knows exactly who you are, what you're walking through, and where you're going. Another translation or other translations actually use this phrase, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. So it's suggesting that God oversees our way, but he actually cares for us along the way. And because of that, ultimately he is leading us safely to our destination. And so part of the blessing here, what it means to be blessed, is having this knowledge that no matter what we face in 2024, no matter what trial you walk in, up against, it's telling us that you are not on your own, that the Lord is watching over your way and he promises to carry you. The blessing here is not being excused from hardship because you're one of God's people. The blessing is that God is with you in the hardship, that he's teaching you, he is carrying you, and he will watch over you through every single valley. And this leads to the fifth and final point, and that's this blessed life. So what Psalm 1 has been telling us, this life is gifted to us in Jesus. So this is just a reminder of what I've been saying throughout the message, that Psalm 1 and the invitation to know God through his word ultimately points us to Jesus. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed, the blessed life, or blessed is the one, and Jesus picked up that language we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, blessed is the one essentially in my kingdom. Psalm 1 says, if we plant ourselves in God's word, we will be like a healthy tree. And Jesus said in John 15, we read that he is the true vine and whoever abides in Jesus will bear much fruit. Well, Psalm 1 also talks about these two very different paths leading people to two different destinations. And I think Jesus picks up this language in Matthew 7. Jesus says this, he says, enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And then Jesus goes on to remind his followers, I am that way, I am that gate, that the way, the truth, the life is Jesus. And so what we see is there is no other way to be made right with God. There is no way to eternal life. There is no path of blessing or blessed life apart from Jesus. There is no fruit and flourishing unless you're rooted in Jesus. That's why we sang this morning, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. And this is why we call the gospel good news. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life. Jesus is the only one who actually fulfilled Psalm 1 perfectly. He is the ultimate blessed man. And because Jesus never sinned, Jesus is able to then die on the cross for our sins. He takes the death we deserve. But not only that, Jesus is raised to new life, and in him we can have new life. We can have resurrection life. And so what faith is, faith in Jesus is confessing our sins. It's confessing that our road leads us to nowhere and destruction. And then it's repenting or it's turning from that way and it's embracing Jesus for our salvation, for our forgiveness, and for this new life, this blessed life with God. You see, Jesus is not just a savior from sin, although he is that, but Jesus also then is the life-giving water and fruit in our life. As we abide in him, we find the joy, the life, the satisfaction that we're looking for. And again, this is important because understanding that, knowing who Jesus is and what he gives us, it helps us read Psalm 1 correctly. Because through Jesus, Psalm 1 is a gracious invitation rather than something we must do or earn or perform. When you read Psalm 1, it is not meant to create guilt in you this morning. You're not meant to feel like like a failure or like there's another thing to do on your plate. The truth is, if we are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are already loved and accepted by the Father. That his smile, his favor, his forgiveness is already upon you. And so what that means is all of life, all of life is a relationship of grace with God, not of works. So that means when we come to Psalm 1, we should see this as a gift of grace, as an invitation to experience this life of blessing with God, this life of fruitfulness in Jesus Christ, which means we don't read the Bible to get God on our side. We read the Bible to learn about how he is on our side. We don't read the Bible as a good deed we do for God. We read the Bible to learn about all the good deeds he has done, is doing, and will do for us. You read the Bible by grace, not as a work. And when you do that, it changes how you read the Bible. It moves from a duty to a delight. It moves from a stress or burden we have to do to a joy that we get to enter into. In Psalm 1, we see that it is a gift. And it's a gift because Jesus changes the atmosphere we live in. Because of Jesus, everything I experience is grace. There's grace to me as a sinner that forgives and justifies me, but there's also grace that invites me near to him, to know him, to hear his voice through scripture, and then to pray back to him in prayer. So as we think about Bible reading, we think about it as a gift of grace. 
as I close in the last few minutes, I just want to give five practical ways of here's what this could look like to saturate yourself in Scripture in 2024. There's five. You don't have to do all of them. I wouldn't recommend it, but pick one that works for you. The first is to choose a Bible reading plan that's realistic. Bible reading plans are nice because they take away the guesswork of what do I read next? It keeps you from that method of just flipping and pointing and saying, ah, Obadiah again. That's frustrating. It's a good book, but probably not what you want to read every day. So pick a Bible reading plan so it tells you exactly what you're going to read each day. But here's the key. It needs to be a plan that is realistic and fits with where you're at. If you've not been reading the Bible, don't say, I'm going to read the Bible for 60 minutes every day this year. Say, I'm going to try to read the Bible for 15 minutes, five days a week. Or if you've not really been reading the Bible or it's new to you, don't try to read the entire Bible in a year. Pick one book at a time to study and to go deep with. Now, as a church, we do want to help you with this. So one of the things we've done is we have two 31-day reading plans for January. You can choose one. You could do both. Um, those are available online, or there's a bunch of printed copies um, at the table in the lobby. The goal of that is to help us as a church get into the Word together, and it's only a one-month commitment. So one option is Proverbs. The idea is read one chapter a day for 31 days. And then the other option is four of Paul's letters. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. The idea behind those two books, why we chose them, are those two plans. One is as you begin the year, Proverbs offers wisdom. And we all need wisdom, and probably especially in 2024. The other reason we chose Paul's letters is starting in January, we'll start walking through the book of Ephesians basically for six months. And so that plan helps get your heart and your mind ready and prepared for what Paul will say to us through the book of Ephesians. But find some Bible reading plan that works for you that's realistic, and dive in. Number two, read the Bible with other Christians. So the whole reason why we do small groups, men's and women's Bible studies, why we do classes, is to help you all read the Bible more together. Starting in a couple of weeks, our men's and women's studies will do the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12 to 50. We'll have classes every single semester about how to read and understand the Bible, or how to apply the Bible to various situations in our life. The goal of a small group is to actually apply the Bible together in relationships. And so find some community. Pick one of those to go deeper in the Word with other Christians to find encouragement and prayer around the Word. Number three, create more margin for Bible reading and maximize that time. And so if part of your goal is I want to read the Bible more in 2024, you might have to spend a few minutes figuring out what do I need to cut or do less of in my life. You might need to set a limit on how much time you're on social media, on your phone, on the internet, or watching TV. I know, not your favorite application point here. But part of the goal to do that is to say, I have to cut some things, not out completely, but I just do them a little less, and I can invest that time into reading or meditating on Scripture. Maybe for you, it's changing a habit. Maybe you wake up, and the first thing you do is pick up your phone, and you check email. Or maybe the last thing you do when you get in bed is you pick up your phone. So maybe you need to change that habit and you either start the day or you end the day with God's word. Or maybe it's just leveraging the, the little moments throughout your day. So when you're driving in your car, when you're waiting in the grocery line, when you're waiting for your food in the curbside line, doing chores, instead of picking up your phone in those few minutes, listen to an audiobook. Listen to the Bible. Take a few minutes, take five minutes, and just meditate on scripture or pray over scripture. But think about for you, and we'll do this at the end, how could you free up even 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day to either read or meditate on Scripture more? 
Number four, grow in wisdom by reading more solid Christian books and probably reading less online material. So if you want to grow in scripture and you want scripture to inform your thinking, read good biblical Christian books. Notice I'm distinguishing Christian books and biblical Christian books. They're not all the same. We have a resource area in the lobby. We have a page online. Both of those are recommending good, theological, practically sound Christian books. Uh, I love to recommend books, so don't ever hesitate to email me or grab me and say, hey, what's a good book or what's a good book on this topic? I would love to recommend resources. And I won't just push my books, I promise you. Josh mentioned he held up the book God's Big Story. So not only is that a good book for teens, it's a good book for adults. It has a daily devotion that takes you through the story of Scripture, and every day there's at least one chapter of the Bible to read. So maybe pick up a copy of that and read that as an adult or as a family. But find good Christian books to inform your thinking. And then fifth and finally, one thing you could do is just encourage others by sharing what you're reading. So for you it might be a resolution not to read more, but to share what you're reading more. Not in a, hey, look how much I'm reading my Bible way, but a means of encouragement. So as you open the scripture and as God is speaking to you, as you're finding promises of God, as you're seeing God at work and learning about his character, Maybe you text or maybe you tell someone, look at what I'm learning about who God is in Scripture. Just imagine if we were a church, not only that we were getting into the Word of God, but we were encouraging one another with the Word of God, that would change our church in 2024. So there's just a few ways, there are obviously more, but find one way for you to grow in the Word in 2024. Think about what could I do different? What is one small step I could take to be more in the Word and walking with God. Psalm 1, it urges us to get into the Bible because that's where God reveals who he is. That in the Bible we have story after story about God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. God's strength to us in our weakness. God's grace and mercy despite our sin. And so if you're thinking about 2024 and you want 2024 to be a good year or a blessed year, what we're told is we get that by saturating ourselves in scripture. That it's not something you have to do, it's something you get to do. That God is inviting you to get to know him, to have your life changed by him, by opening and reading his word. So we're going to bow our head, I'm going to give you a minute or two, just to maybe pause and reflect and ask yourself, what is something I can do different? How can I grow in God's word this year? Or maybe for you, you just need to pray. Maybe you need to ask God, God, I don't really desire to open the Bible. Would you stir the desires of my heart? Would you help me delight in your word more? Would you give me wisdom about what I need to cut so I can prioritize your word? But take a couple of minutes and just reflect on what God has for you through his word in this next year.